You are listening to Relations Radio. We will be talking about parental opioid use, some of the challenges and people that frame the issues. I'm Dr. Landon Kuster, and I will be your host. Hello there. So today I'm going to talk with Dr. Emily Finch, who's with SLAM in South London. And we're going to be talking about some of the issues that parents might be facing at this very moment and how this might impact their family and children and access to services. So uh, we're recording this from my living room and from her living room. Uh, so you'll have to excuse any background noises and hopefully this will find its way safely to your living room. Um, so now let's talk to Dr. Emily Finch. And I'm Clinical Director for Addictions in SLAM. Um, what this means at the moment, actually, is that I'm effectively managing four different services for addictions, um, patients with addiction problems, um, two of which are in busy London boroughs, one of, a couple of which are in quieter London boroughs. Um, so, and I'm also involved in national policy work in addictions. And, and in fact, that's also beginning to hot up at the moment. And I'm beginning to, we're, we've had to look um, quite seriously at some, some of the work we're doing nationally in order to support clients through this difficult time. Okay. Um, well, let's actually just jump to some of those questions since you've brought it up, which is, I mean, this is quite a, quite a, you know, I think for the, the, you know, the best of people's circumstances, a difficult situation to be in. But, you know, what are some of the issues that, you know, might be impacting, you know, parents and families at this time? So thinking through some of the, you know, issues might be around, you know, supervised consumption for ORT, um, sort of safeguarding issues. Um, so let's maybe talk first about, you know, how are people accessing services that are now disrupted? Well, what services are trying to do is maintain as much continuity of treatment as possible, particularly for people on OST. Um, that's good in a way, but I think what's beginning to happen is it, it, perhaps there's less like a social support, but I'll go on to that later. Um, what services have done is relax some of the rules around OST in order to make sure that people get continuity of their scripts. And what that's meaning in practice is that people get maybe a longer pickup. Um, we've done that because it means people are not out so much, they're not so exposed to pharmacy, to other patients, to meeting people, and that of course is, is reducing their COVID risk. It might over time, of course, increase the risk of them having more um, methadone uh, in their homes yeah. um, and that can be good for some people but for other people it might mean they take more than they're prescribed which means they run out yeah. um, it probably means that there's less scrutiny by drug and alcohol services which might result again in them using more or, or um, being more at risk of overdose yeah. And both services and individual prescribers and at a policy level, we've been trying to weigh up the risks and balance risks of this. And we think in the short term, this is quite useful, but in the long term, it's likely to be potentially expose our service users to more risks, I think. Yeah. And also mean that treatment is less individualized, that we're not taking into account what individuals' needs are. Now, where that applies to parents, particularly, of course, is they may be responsible for more 
OST medication in their homes than they usually are. Yeah. Um, they may um, therefore have issues with protecting their children um, from the, the risks of taking more methadone than they should. Um, and they're unlikely to have any, uh, they have more, fewer of these sort of external controls yeah. that um, the system tries to help people with. Um, and that may be difficult for people. Yeah, I mean, I think I just just clocked an article that was about, you know, sort of alcohol um, poisoning, actually, and the sort of increased rates um, that in certain places, you know, people are drinking more. Um, I mean, it's it's a sort of also a stress response uh, in, you know, these scenarios where your your sense of agency is disrupted. Um, you know, what are you know, what kind of stuff are you seeing for, you know, people that have substance dependency that are kind of thrust into a relatively stressful situation of their whole sort of dynamics and um you know who's in the house where they are their daily routines all the uncertainties are unfolding well i mean we know that many of our service users have either insecure or inadequate housing and at the moment they're, they're trapped in it rather um which is clearly more difficult for them than for many people in society who have nice places to be um there are more risk of difficulties in their relationships so more risks potentially of domestic violence and we're seeing, um, interestingly, I, I've seen two pictures emerging from an alcohol point of view. One is people drinking more, and there's some evidence that, that, that we're selling more alcohol, so people are drinking more. Uh, some of that will be stockpiling, but some of that's probably um, genuine drinking more. But on the other hand, I've also seen some people who've, who are drinking less. I've got some service users who've decided to, this is a high-risk situation, they don't want to risk going into hospital. Yeah. And they're drinking less. So I think it is a slightly mixed picture. Um, but all in all, I think it's particularly difficult for our service users because they don't have, they're often not very well engaged in support mechanisms anyway. Yeah. Um, clearly, for parents, um, schools aren't operating, the normal childcare is not operating. That's difficult for all parents, but for parents um, with a drug and alcohol problem, um is potentially even worse so yeah. i i think they're likely to be trapped in small flats or inadequate housing with, with very little support and of course they've lost many of the support maybe they had from extended family um most the obviously the highest risk group in this epidemic are the old are people who are elderly and that many people cuts out support from parents or aunts and uncles um so yes, they're very vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing that keeps coming to mind as well is, you know, all of these sort of places where the children might have, you know, moments of sort of respite or moments of, um, you know, being outside the house. So all of these, you know, the closing of playgrounds and libraries and GPs, um, what kind of support might be, you know, wh what are, how are social work, uh, you know, how is that carrying on? How are, ho are home visits still being conducted in any sort of form? You know, what what is replacing some of that sort of welfare checks? Very few home visits are starting, will be going on. Um, clearly, local authorities will still be responding to emergencies. But again, I think that's, that's less likely to affect our service users. Um, most drug and alcohol services are working remotely. Yeah. Um, for sort of routine contact. Um, and I think uh, we're finding that's not always bad. Mm. Some service users are able to use that quite well. And I think um, it's reasonable for them to continue to demand 
from the from, from drug and alcohol services, reasonable quality um, support around psychosocial support and counselling. Just because it's on the phone doesn't mean that um, it's not there. Yeah. Um, of course, things like 12 step has gone largely remotely and online and many um, 12 step meetings have, have, are, are operating on various remote platforms. So yeah. that's also true. Um, and we know that our clients, you know, uh, people who use drugs and alcohol have, have many different skills and, and yeah. they're only going to be the same as the rest of us in that they're going to expand and be able to use their IT skills more than they ever have. So I'd encourage people not to be hopeless about it. You know, you, you your key worker is out there and should be out there. They may be at the end of a phone or the end of a FaceTime call, but they are there and you should use what you've got. Yeah. The other thing is, is, is we're all using our social media and that's where the support from families can still happen um, in the same way as everybody else does. I mean, do you see any of these these tools carrying on then, um, you know, if they're quite useful as, you know, a way to sort of provide immediate support or, you know, continue some of these, you know, digital environments? And I guess another question as well is, you know, what about peer support? Is that something that is picked up um, digitally as well? Um, I've not personally had that feedback, but I'm quite sure it can be. Yeah. Um, there's no, it, it always has been traditionally quite a lot, um, but I think it can be used as, as much as possible. And people are using their phones and if they have them, computers and other platforms as much as possible. Yeah. So it's not completely hopeless. The other thing is healthcare is there, you know, GPs are on the phone. Um, uh, it's not impossible to access them. Yeah, it's just different. Yeah, but it's different. Okay. Um, and what have so what have you sort of filling your day to day work? How has that you know been kind of unfolding as as you've now been you know sequestered to your living room? Well, we are doing more. All, all our meetings are remotely. Yeah. Um, because both in the health service and at work and at other jobs, anyone who can work at home is, and so if you're socially distancing, there's no point in sitting in an office. Um, when you can actually sit at home and not have the exposure to the environment that the journey to work gives you. Um, but what we're doing is more and more um, online meetings, which work all right, actually. I yeah. think um, some people's working lives will be changed forever following this. Um, yeah. No, I think thinking a little bit, drifting a little bit away from the family and just thinking about the substance use um, population more broadly. Uh, one of the things that, you know, I know I've been thinking a lot about lately is, you know, just disturbed uh, supply networks for illicit drug, drug yeah. use. Um, there's, there's certainly evidence that that's going on. I've heard reports um, from various national forums I'm in that um, there's less crack around, that the spice um, supply has dried up. Yeah. in some parts of the country and what we are seeing in some of our services is that's driving people back into treatment yeah um and people who know they have to self-isolate know that it's easier to do that with a script than without one so yeah. where we are seeing new patients um they're usually people who we've known who we know but have decided to come back in yeah. um the other thing that's happening again it, it moves away from family a little bit is that although the government is not officially saying it's discharging prisoners. Yeah. Um, 
actually I think more and more people who are low risk and that includes a lot of drug users who are just you know uh, obviously often not very high risk um, offenders um, they are being discharged yeah uh, the, the other thing that I think might impact people um, is we are being advised to use more buprenorphine than methadone okay the lower risk of overdoses interesting. Um, and I think service users are going to find that being more and more of a message that they're getting from their treatment providers and they may not like that yeah um, but it may be the best they'll get and what what is so yeah what is the reaction been to that um you know is it that they don't like the sort of response that i mean i've, I've heard this before that people you know have a preference and that's what they'll go with but what is the what is your the difference um if you can explain explain that to me well, the reason is, is that because methadone and, and buprenorphine are different types of drugs, buprenorphine is just much less dangerous than overdose. Yeah. So, um, uh, people can't really take too much of it and and, and end up um, in respiratory arrest, whereas if they take too much methadone, they do. And yeah. because of that, in situations where we're having to give people longer pickups and more to take away, yeah. I think generally speaking, clients have been reasonably positive about it. Yeah. Um, and as I said, we, we're seeing a steady trickle of people coming to treatment rather than thousands and thousands. So, um, you know, our clients are, many of them are actually behaving really sensibly and following government guidelines and trying to stick to it, although it's difficult for them. Yeah. What do you see? As, what do you see might be some of the challenges sort of, you know, uh, thinking forward of, you know, if this is to carry on, um, you know, and that's sort of neglecting even the challenges of kind of restarting and reestablishing these, you know, relationships or, you know, I know from a lot of my work in prisons, for example, is, you know, get out of conditions of restraint, of, you know, constraint uh, when they're in a prison system and there's a sort of renaissance of people using again or kind of, you know, relapsing. Um, I imagine there might be similar things yeah. for people in the scenario of coming out of. Yeah. The other thing is, remember that this situation is very anxiety provoking and people are very worried yeah um and i think for some people especially people that use drugs and alcohol sometimes the anxiety is unbearable without drugs and alcohol that's why they've got into that situation so yes of course they're going to have problems it's difficult yeah. enough uh, the whole level of anxiety in society has increased hugely yeah. and have you been inducting um new you know individuals so those that are disrupted uh from from treatments or sorry those that are disrupted from you know a supply of yeah, drugs have. How, how has that been taking place kind of remotely? Is that all done by... Well, not really entirely remotely, but we're having brief assessments of people in the yep. services we work on. We're doing triage assessments over the phone first, so we're establishing whether people are unwell and in, in an attempt to keep the, the hospital safe. We've still got people working in the hospitals. Yeah. So staff are who know about drugs and alcohol problems are in, for instance, in, in King's College, which is the one I know well. And they're, they're still there, the service is reduced, but they are there and they will see the most um, yeah. sickest people and the people who most need interventions. We are, we've issued guidance around both drugs and alcohol harm reduction, yeah. um, particularly around people who are dependent drinkers who may not have access to so much alcohol as they did, Yeah. Um, which is likely to mean that they put themselves at risk of seizures. So we've issued guidance and that's what people would get yeah. on the phone if, if they presented. 
the moment most of us aren't able to do alcohol detoxes, but we are giving people um, daily advice on how to reduce drinking safely. Okay. And what will happen? What do you sort of envision as this, you know, what, what problems might come up as this rolls on? So if we're to push this into, say, you know, June and July and August, um, you know, right now it's a bit of a temporary measure. but Well, I think um, there will be people who are not getting what they need. Yeah. And they're going to eventually, those needs are going to emerge. And um, services will try very hard to um, to meet those needs, but they might find it difficult. Um, we've got staff who are actually very pressured and stressed and anxious, yeah. and they may not be able to keep this up for that long. Yeah. And, and as, as, as employers and as services, we're trying to make sure our staff rotate in and out, um, yeah. that they're not overstretched, they do get their rests. Yeah. Um, and I think like the whole country, the, the the journey out of this is going to be quite odd. Yeah. Um, we know, for instance, that people are not getting alcohol detoxes in hospitals, particularly because hospitals have, are busy doing other things. Yeah. And we don't know how that's going to play out. Yeah. Um, routine detoxes have largely stopped happening. Yeah. And again, people are going to want to do those. Many of the rehabs have had to close. Yeah. Um, because of the social distancing rules. And those are people who are not getting treatment that they may be looking forward to and maybe working towards. So they're all going to still be in the system and need the treatment when it comes out. Yeah, so it'll probably be a backlog, I'm guessing. Yeah, and yeah. Sort of a large catch-up game. What, yeah. what, what, sort of, what sort of practical advice might you give to, you know, families and parents um, that might be struggling to cope or you know, just ways of sort of dealing with uh, these changes um, that might be sort of tailored to them? Well, I think for the sort of issues of managing their anxieties and, and therefore probably their drug and alcohol use, I think some of it is, is the same advice as the rest of us are getting, you know, stick to a daily routine, um, make sure you don't too much pressure on yourself to do other things, yeah. um, try and regulate your substance use, try and keep it Either get a script or just keep it regular. Um, don't um, use too much or too little. Use yeah. what support is around. And, and as I said, you, you should have a key worker on a phone. Um, the other thing services are doing face-to-face -face is needle exchange. Don't yeah. expose yourselves to, to too much um, risk that's likely to have long-term implications. But it is, I think, about trying to moderate your drug use. It may, pe may People may not be able to stop completely. But yeah. try and keep it under control. Keep yeah. It, keep it regular, um, and don't try and avoid binges that are likely to involve in likely to involve you in a fairly sort of catastrophic level of damage. Which, and at the moment, the services aren't out there to pick you up. Yeah, I was going to say it's just a it's it's a bit of a tough situation because you've got two competing things: one that's anxiety-producing and sort of taking away people's you know agency and worry about access to different things and then also you know the challenges of practically if you need to detox you can't just you know walk into an ER you can't just um, there's a bit of a, a change in that. Um, I guess the final questions that I sort of have for you is just a little bit you know maybe you can tell us a little bit about your role in the relations study um, and just what you envision that study uh, producing over the next three years. Well what I hope it does is it throws some light 
on some of the um, subtleties of the issues of parenting for people who use drugs and alcohol. I think it's very easy to regard those parents as just one great big problem yeah. and actually understanding what pressures they're under, the sorts of things that can help them, the sort of things, things that are positive um, for them. Yeah. And generally expand our body of knowledge about what yeah. drug using parents and alcohol using parents um, are and, and how they function. Yeah. Um, because I think we're in a world at the moment where drug and alcohol using parents are, are roundly condemned, sometimes for good reason, but sometimes no one really understands for them what pressures they have and how, how we can help them with those pressures. So I think it's about understanding their needs, understanding what, what they look like. To a certain extent, I mean, to use a very medical word, understanding what the prognosis is like. Yeah. So knowing perhaps that maybe there are some people whose skills at parenting are going to be so poor that we should yeah. know very early on. And other people with the right support can be helped to be good parents. And I think the methodology of the relation study, which is um, a sort of exploratory qualitative methodology, should help us do some of that. Yeah. Um, and through that, develop better tailored treatments and interventions that can change some of the attitudes over time because it isn't simple yeah no it, so that's what i hope um and i hope what i can bring to it is that I'm a, I'm a clinician which means i do have contact with patients and i have a lot of contact with um policy making and i think that does give me some insights that are very useful and it's also very good for me to work with academics who are very much more systematic and often more objective about their approaches, which is a useful reminder for a clinician not to just get, you know, um, bogged down in, in, in the people they meet face to face and the people they know. Great. And thank you, Dr. Finch, for such a wonderful conversation. Um, this has really been such an opportunity to talk about all of the issues and challenges and really the opportunities that are going to come from this constantly changing COVID-19 environment, both here in the UK and abroad. So uh, stay tuned and keep listening to Relations Radio. Mm -hmm.